with elephants. Good morning, Marie. Good morning, Kate. Yes, and I guess、um, we were talking just before the show that I have groundhogs and turkeys. You've had muskrats and rabbits and things, but elephants, I would imagine, cause a lot more chaos than any of the above. Would that be right? That's true. I said it's hard to listen to someone whine about deer or groundhogs or muskrats when you realize we have elephants tracking up the <laughs> turf and reaching for plants in their yard. You know, my cats weigh three hundred fifty pounds apiece, and where does a three hundred fifty pound cat sit? You know, anywhere she wants to. Oh yes. So, Then we have animals that will eat anything we've done in their exhibits as soon as they're released into it. <laughs> so it's not just a matter of our plants; it's what kind of gardening products can we use that aren't just organic, but in some cases have to be edible. In addition to about six hundred different animals here, we have a half million visitors. So、and that, that's to, the two, that's the two-legged variety, right? Exactly. <laughs> Not just seagulls and Canada geese and, and you know odd creatures that fly in. We have over five hundred guests a five hundred thousand guests a year. Our record on school buses has been a forty-two buses in one morning. So it takes you know not just zoo gardening but public gardening to another extreme when we have that many people. Coming into our gardens, yeah,、um, and so you know, how did you、um, end up?、Uh, because you're the landscape coordinator for Virginia Zoo. So, how in the world did you end up taking care of plants and landscapes at a, a zoo? I mean, it wouldn't be the sort of thing that your average horticultural、um, degree would probably think about as being. You, this is the type of employment you can do. <laughs> It was a totally random, or maybe serendipity, moment. I had never considered being a zoo horticulturist, and I have a degree in horticulture. I've worked with the floriculture professor. I taught at the state school for the blind. I'd studied floral design in United States and in Japan, and I worked in the diplomatic course. I was used to having lots of guests. I taught school. And I love to garden. And one Sunday morning, I was at church on time, and a friend happened to hand over a job announcement. She picked it up at the botanic garden at a class she was attending. I said, "Marie, the zoo is looking for someone to work in the gardens, and you've done it all." Well, I had, and they thought that some that time the job was posted for someone who had to be at least eighteen years old. Two years' experience, who was able to grow plants in a greenhouse, work with the dis- disabled, work with our guests, take education programs out you know, in the zoo and beyond, and do hands-on gardening. So that was a bit of a chuckle. That yeah, because you could, you could、that. probably tick every one of those. <laughs> I had done every one of those, and、yeah. so I came into the zoo with a degree and thirty-five years' experience when. They were looking for eighteen years old plus two years, 
But the beauty of it is it covered one private school tuition, and that was nice when my family had four going out at the moment. So I got to have the fun job in the family. Oh, wow. Um, And I would think that you have to have several different sorts of hats um, that you have to wear for your job. I mean, there's the animal habitat hat, and there's growing food for the animals, I assume. And then there's care of the public um, areas and educating the public as well. So which of those three do you find the most challenging area? Ah. Many times it's the animal habitats that are the most complicated. We have to have an understanding of the animal themselves, not just the type of animal, but the specific animal and any personality quirks or species quirks. We need to understand their native habitat and their natural behaviors, or maybe they've learned some bad habits at other places too. So we have to know if they you know, really tore up certain plants in their previous home or whether they were known for their efforts to escape via the plants. Um, if they had a favorite plant that they like to smell or to play with as well. But the exhibits are constantly under stress from the animals primarily, and playing in them, swinging through the trees, pulling on the grasses, walking on the ground. And then we also have our co-workers, the keepers, who have to be able to clean the exhibit and help maintain it. And sometimes our schedules don't mesh exactly. So expectations have to be balanced as to what we can do for the keepers before the zoo opens as well. We like to have all the exhibits open by 10 o'clock when the zoo gates open. So working with the exhibits is really the most challenging piece we have. Yeah. And I would imagine um, that the um, the garden itself, um, well, how big is the zoo overall? We have 53 acres. Wow. And... The park is over 100 years old and has had animals in it since the beginning. So we have beautiful trees that already exist and thousands of plants that we've added and thousands that we plant each year. Um, And we have a horticulture staff of eight for 53 acres. Wow, that's a, that's so, a lot of acreage. <laughs> and it all, is. is this all actively under cultivation, or is some of it kind of uh, just around the perimeter that really doesn't take intensive work and mowing and things like that? We have a little bit of perimeter, but most of our open space is also event space. So that we have summer camps that meet here. We have corporate parties, we have weddings, we have zoo snoozes, overnight sleepovers at the zoo where the people staying over will be out. They usually stay in the buildings, but they're out on the grounds early in the morning. And we have bird watchers that come in. So we have some wilder areas in our perimeter because we're two-thirds surrounded by wetlands as well. We have marshes and the Lafayette River runs along the edge of the zoo and that empties directly into the chesapeake bay 
about three miles from the zoo. So we have some wild areas, but there's a lot that still needs attention. Yeah. And and do you find, I mean, certainly if it's been, um, you said the, the zoo itself has been around for quite a long time. And I think over probably the last 15 to 20 years, the whole idea of the habitats themselves for the animals um, is more than just, if I think of the London Zoo or something, you know, Things were in cages. Now they're in, in habitat. So how has that affected um, the job description that you've got, do you think? Oh, it's tremendous. I'd like to mumble when I say about 30 or so years ago when I walked my first two children here. Actually, it was the late 70s. Um, this was like any other zoo. People could drive through. The animals were in chain link and concrete cages. Some, one looked like a welded jail cell even for ch- the chimpanzees. It's pretty depressing, but people could see the animal like a little laboratory sample. But what they were not seeing was the animal's natural behavior. They were seeing a poor thing cooped up in a totally unnatural environment. And at that point, just general employees from the parks services came over to hose down the exhibits and throw the animals some food. They weren't trained in animal science or zoology. When I came to interview for the position here, it was in 1996, and the zoo had come a long way at that point and had plans for a very large new African exhibit to where you are to believe you are in Botswana when you cross into that exhibit. The plants look like African plants. The African ones that will grow here are planted there. And the animals behave much more normally in an exhibit that resembles and supports their natural behaviors. If they don't swim, water might make a good barrier to the animal but appear open to the public. Um, If they climb, we have to be sure we don't put any plants too near the perimeter fence that could bend and let them out or have anything they can grow into the exhibit in that case. It's much more complex, but it's also much more representational of the animal's home, and many human artifacts are included in our designs, too, so that humans can be reminded we are all part of the great picture in nature. You can't isolate a little sample, a little animal in a cell, and think that you have encapsulated a piece of nature it's the ability to see it in its total setting as best as we can recreate Um, in our African exhibit our trail of the tiger is Southeast Asian exhibit Um, as seamless a flow between the exhibits as well so humans have a sense of being immersed in nature with the animals that's a, a Big, big change in design. And and I think possibly part of that was the awareness that animals, or, or whether they be gorillas or tigers or whatever, um, they actually did have brain movement as well. And I think before yeah. they were more looking like, well, as you say, a lab animal or a, just a stuffed animal. They're not thinking, they don't feel. And I think that whole whole shift has changed as well. It really has. Understanding the... And this is the psychology of every different animal species, how they perceive the world, 
um, how they interact with each other, how they interact with plants, with the with the climate. Are they more active in winter or summer? Um, a winter animal indoors in a building, it wouldn't be very fair unless you said it's so cold humans couldn't take it. <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, we have to go for our first commercial break here, Marie. Um, but we will be back talking more about elephants in your garden with Marie Butler, the landscape coordinator at Virginia Zoo. And the Master Gardener Hour will be back in just a moment. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to the Master Gardener Hour. Remember, you can catch up with us on Facebook at the Master Gardener Hour. And if you miss any shows, you can find archives at americaswebradio.com webpage and you can find them on Stitchers. This morning, we are talking plants and animals with Marie Mims Butler, who is the landscape coordinator for the Virginia Zoo. And that must be an amazing place to work. Um, but we talked a little in general about some of the things that you have to do. And I, I know that in, I think it was Indiana, when they revamped the um, zoo garden, um, the ground people or some of the people were actually sent over to Africa or wherever to figure out, um, to see, study the animals in the natural habitat and then that would therefore prepare them to be able to create something similar in Indianapolis. Um, so, I mean, do they send you to Africa and Asia to go study these things in the wild? Oh, that would be lovely. It just so happens that I lived in Southeast Asia for four years, <laughs> so I could bring some of my own knowledge to the table. And zoos also share information with each other about habitats and what they find, other zoo horticulturists have found um, in studying the natural habitat and how it translates into many different climates, too. We have the American Zoo Horticulturist um, group that shares information, and it varies, of course, by what climate we're in. Florida can reproduce Southeast Asia almost year-round, 
And here in the southeast corner of Virginia, Norfolk, we're zone 8, which is warmer than most of the state. We can still have good backbone plantings, but not a lot of lush tropical look. But the Okavanga Delta in Africa is more grass and marshland and some large trees. And we managed to replicate that pretty well with plants that will actually grow here. And we have an African vegetable garden as well. And those are varieties that have come from Africa or they're the closest we can grow in the United States. And the Norfolk Master Gardener volunteers help us with that garden, and they are here on event days to talk to the public about vegetable gardening and about some of these unusual African vegetables that we grow as well. So, again, we try to tie those human pieces together and literally, in this case, offer people a taste of Africa. Some of our keepers have gone overseas and understand the habitats of some of their animals, sometimes on conservation projects, um, sometimes on their own vacations. So it is. we used to rely a lot on the Internet as well. But zoos are very good, accredited zoos are very good at communicating with each other to share design ideas. Yeah. And our large exhibits are actually designed by architectural firms that, are specifically zoo designers. Now, that's interesting for the Frank Lloyd Wright people out there. I mean, there are actually other firms designing for elephants. <laughs> I wouldn't imagine that, that that's exactly a course on the general architecture uh, part, but yeah. No. Yeah. No. Yeah. It would certainly help to have some zoology and some landscape architecture in there. Um, We've worked with one particular firm out of New Orleans for three time, three big projects and have a wonderful rapport. And it's so much more cohesive a design when the animal keepers and the horticultural staff can also communicate with the, the big design firms on what we need to make their exhibits look good. And so, so when when you say that you're replicating um, these sort of an African savanna, for instance, are you able to use the exact species that they use over there, or is it a, just a, a maybe a more hardy variety of that species, or is it just something that maybe is like a, maybe a maple or some, something that grows well here but gives that general feel of something over there? Sometimes it's all of the above, and in our case, we're very lucky that many plants from South Africa do well in our climate, so that that's a big draw of plants for us. Um, there are look-alike plants. We cannot grow the baobab tree, but if you squint your eyes, you might believe that a southern magnolia looks a little bit like one. <laughs> <laughs> So we, we didn't take down nice big trees because of this, but we do realize that elephants don't dwell in southern hardwood forests. So we have native plants that support our local wildlife all over the zoo, but we do use some exotic plants too because we have exotic animals in residence. 
And so um, I guess with a lot of animals that are, I guess, in, in the gardens in, on a domestic level, they do damage to um, everything from the vegetable garden to the shrubs out there, if you're talking deer. Do monkeys and things like that cause active damage to the plantings that, that actually kill the plants or, or, or wreck the ability to really have a good-looking plant for more than maybe two years in your <laughs> situation? Absolutely. Absolutely. When we built our new African exhibit, we were given a day that the exhibits were to open. And it didn't kind of matter what Mother Nature thought about that. We were given an opening date. So we had two weeks to try to establish sod and ornamental grasses and some trees in a baboon exhibit. And these particular baboons were known to spend about 22 waking hours a day, it seemed like, pulling at plants in their native habitat. I watched the National Geographic film. I knew we were sunk. We planted, sprayed the exhibit down with a repellent that I hoped would deter them. Got out of the exhibit just in time for the grand opening, and the baboons came out, and they ate that repellent like I had sprayed the exhibit with Hershey's syrup. (laughs) They pulled up the sod... They threw it in their moat. They pulled up the ornamental grasses and had a grand time trashing the exhibit. We went in after they were back in lock-in, and we put the side back down, not realizing we accidentally covered up some of their treats. So the next time they pulled on the side, they found peanuts or carrot bits, so they were rewarded for pulling up the side. <laughs> and we spent more than three months trying to get the sod to grow under grass-eating baboons because we didn't have the lead time for that exhibit to establish. And for primates, that's particularly important. They're very smart. And most any animal will notice a new disruption in their yard, but the primates also realize that the plants have not established yet in some manner. Wow. I mean, that that has to be a challenge. (laughs) It was heartbreaking. Have you ever seen grown horticulturists cry? I mean, we worked so hard, and they trashed that exhibit in 10 minutes. But we did did it. We got the grass finally. We've used lots of compost. We use kelp meal, powdered seaweed, in our soil blends to try to help plants establish quickly. So we had done all of our horticultural magic, and luckily the plants finally took hold in spite of the baboons. And once they're established, the baboons just let, got bored with them? or They didn't pay attention to them. Oh. Yeah, well they, they would have snacks and treats, and moving, particularly moving and hiding treats in an exhibit is kind of considered behavioral enrichment, encouraging the animals to forage like they would if they were in the wild, because bored zoo animals can get as psychotic as bored humans and develop abnormal behaviors. So trying to encourage normal behaviors would be having them you know, look for their treats. The baboons actually did us a favor because they loved bamboo shoots, and the outer edge of their exhibit beyond the fencing had been planted with running bamboo. And it ran into the exhibit. 
Well, they didn't know if they let it grow, they would have an exit route if we didn't cut it. But they kept eating the bamboo shoots. So I warn people in this area not to plant running bamboo unless they have baboons to control it. <laughs> yeah, because I'm not sure even goats will uh, control that. But, uh, yeah. And so the animals themselves, they do have individual characters within, say, the baboons or the monkeys. You, you find quiet characters and aggressive characters just like you would um, a group of teenagers in a classroom. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. We had the baboons that were into tearing up the lawn and the turf, but the next group came in, weren't really interested in in the plants at all. And there are apes that swing, so they swing across the ropes in their exhibit. They also swing through the trees, and I'm convinced they make eye contact before they break the smaller branches. But they'll break trees, they'll break pieces, we have gibbons that seem to juggle the seed pods off the crepe myrtle trees. They bounce them from hand to hand and hand to hand and eventually pop them in their mouth and then spit them out like they're having a spitting contest. <laughs> uh, we just You never quite know who's going to appreciate the plants or who's going to break them in appreciation um, to keep up with them. And a lot depends on the weight of the animal, too. And so, and so are they trashing them because they physically don't like a plant or just because they're bored and it's put there for their entertainment? Sometimes it's just there. And particularly when they're swinging through, you know, they don't always know the load limit of that particular branch. And it's, that's what's there for them to play with. So we have to, be, we have to try to use sturdy trees, non-toxic to that animal, trees and plants of course that can exist in our climate plants that we can get into their exhibit we've had to use some major cranes to place trees in animal exhibits when there was no way we could have taken that in on a backhoe or a ball cart by hand we had trees that had to be flown in by crane to be dropped into place because the trees had to have some size to them but that, that's in order because, to survive the animals. So, so by the time you actually put them in, they have got to be big enough that an animal can instantly swing on them, like when you put a, um, a shrub or something in the, in the garden, a bird invariably within an hour or two will come and sit on it. It's got, oh, yeah. to, be, it's got to be established. Okay, well, we need to take another quick commercial break here, but when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about um, elephants in the garden with Marie Butler from the Virginia Zoo. The Master Garden Hour will be right back. This is Tracy Pearson with Prissy Tomboy. Listen to the Prissy Tomboy radio show every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time as I interview special guests that will inspire adventure and fitness for females. This is Michael Gano with Insight to Israel. Every day the Israeli Defense Force finds itself on the front line of the war with the militant arm of Islam. Surrounded by enemies from within and without, they fight for the only Jewish state. Military service is mandatory, ladies serving two years and men serving three right out of high school. While young people in other democracies are busy traveling or attending university, Israeli men and women gear up for basic training. In a world of heads of state, politicians, ambassadors, diplomats, and a leftist media, many times our voice at the grassroots level is drowned out. 
So we started an ongoing project called Hershey's for Heroes. Patriot conservatives from all over the U.S. are sending Hershey's chocolate bars with a note of thanks for defending Israel. Won't you join us by sending a sweet message to the IDF? For information, please see my Facebook page at Michael Gano. Thank you, God bless Patriot conservatives, and God bless Israel in her struggle for sovereignty and security. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. You're back listening to the Master Gardener Hour. I am the host of the show, Kate Copsey. And this morning we are talking elephants in the garden with Marie Butler from the Virginia Zoo, uh, where she takes charge of the landscapes for the animals and the humans. Um, So we talked a little about the landscape in in general. Um, So let's talk, Marie, a little about the animal food. Um, There's a big trend, um, certainly with humans, to um, eat organically. Um, do you give your um, animals organically raised food? We sure do. We try to garden as organically as possible overall here at the zoo because I believe that's an, uh, the environmentally responsible thing to do. And whenever we have non-toxic plants, we can offer them through the keepers to the animals so that when we're removing the pansies and violas from the winter gardens, they will be offered to the herbivores to eat. We just took out the winter vegetables in our African garden, and the tortoises loved the winter collards and kales and the winter leafy greens, and our elephants are very fond of onions. But you don't want to be too near an elephant that's been eating a lot of onions. (laughs) That's moderated, what they they get to eat. Um, We have a small area called our browse garden that shows a sampling of plants that grow on the grounds that are used for animal food. It was an Eagle Scout project. Of course, they love the fresh bamboo. They like tree branches. We have a row of Bradford pear trees here, and they were free, and they are there to be cut for elephant food. So if you don't have elephants, I don't recommend planting Bradford pears either. They're better pear trees than that. But we grow the Bradford pears as elephant snacks. So a lot of things we have that the animals find as treats. Um, Sweet, the green sweet potato vines are so popular. The ornamental sweet potatoes will grow enthusiastically in our heat. And so we trim them. And a lot of the animals, the rhinos in particular, like the margarita variety, the one year they liked the black leaf variety. So I think they traded from licorice to margaritas <laughs> in what they wanted. So we have a lot of animals that love the plants that we grow from the end a chance to have a fresh snack, or something that smells wonderful. Um, our moon bears love white flowers, fragrant white flowers. They love crepe myrtle blossoms and magnolia blossoms just to smell and roll on and play with. Hmm. Right. So, right. so, so, so how do you figure out in the zoo what is toxic 
to maybe one animal, like I, I know dogs aren't supposed to have chocolate. Um, do you have that same problem with finding, I mean, it's, it's fine for an animal to like something, but it could actually make them sick. Um, so how, how, is there enough knowledge out, out there um, with white flowers in general that you, you have to tinker it to the specific uh, recipient in the zoo? Right, right. Now, we wouldn't hand them an angel's trumpet blossom that may smell lovely, but they're terribly poisonous. The zoo, we maintain what we call the browse list, what's available for animal snacks, what's toxic. Zoos share lists with each other, and that's very important because these are truly exceptions in the animal world. We have new staffers now who really love birds. We call them the bird nerds, and birds have a whole different range of plants that can be toxic to them um, or healthy for them. So we maintain lists, and we're very good at even using human toxicity as a base. Um, We can use our cell phones and check things on them out on the grounds immediately. The ASPCA and Cornell have excellent websites on plants that are toxic, primarily for people's pets. But that's very important. My daughter had two small dogs, and she told me, I planted a window box of herbs for them. And before I could even say, Whitney, did you check? She goes, I checked the toxicity list. (laughs) (laughs) These are okay. And her little shih tzu loved lemon balm and would eat one leaf very neatly at a time. And the little chihuini, the chihuahua with dachshund cross, liked cilantro. They didn't eat the basil. They didn't eat the chives. She could have those. But they each had their herb. They enjoyed, but she had checked the toxicity list. I was so proud that you know, she'd learned something from her zoo gardening mama. Oh, yeah. And, and do you find, I mean, catnip, for instance, with cats uh, is a little bit like alcohol in humans. Are, are there the equivalent in um, plants that you can give the animals, shall we say, um, to give them a happy time? Yes, uh, there, there are certain plants that some of them do love. Our first tigers were a pair of sisters, Shira and Shaka Khan, and they loved rosemary. They would get as silly as cats wallowing in catnip. And imagine that 300-pound cat running in circles, chasing its tail, falling on the ground and chewing its back foot and flopping on its back with all four paws in the air. Just silly over rosemary. And this means big branches of rosemary. They didn't care anything about cat mint or catnip. Their herb of choice was rosemary. And we had spider monkeys that loved bronze fennel. They would just literally rub the fennel all over their bodies. They would get slobbery silly from the scent of fennel. And the other monkeys didn't care about it at all. When we've had different species of tigers and other tigers in, they haven't cared one bit about rosemary. So it's kind of like my house cats. I had one cat that really loved cat mint, and knee liniment were his two intoxicants, and the other two cats just looked at him puzzled. So it does very much, it varies as to how, what plants the animals find enticing, and in some cases intoxicating, 
and others that they that bothers them a bit. They don't care in the least. We actually have an our herb garden arranged in an animal theme. And one small walk in the herb garden I consider happy hour. And that's the cat mint and the rosemary and the bronze fennel. And we have silver vine, which is a form of kiwi that is supposed to be the preferred herb of the lions in Africa. We haven't had, it hasn't grown enough to cut enough out to, to let our lions have a sample. But that is supposed to be a favorite plant of the, of the wild lions as well. But we have herbs that can be used in animal medicines, herbs that animals like to eat, and herbs that even have animal names like lamb's ears and horse tail and spider flower. Um, it's a fun garden. It's a fun twist on herb gardening. Uh-huh. And, and so, so you give the, the, the rosemary to the tigers just occasionally to, to, for them to be silly on that. Sometimes yeah, what yeah. the reaction is. Yeah. Yeah, and actually, I, th- I guess I was under the assumption that all cats um, went a bit dopey on catnip. Um, so I, I thought it would have been a, a genus non-selective thing. Um, but ov- obviously you found, found otherwise, different lines. Is it because they were from different areas, maybe? Yeah, I, we tried to figure out what form of, was it aromatics? Yeah, you know, we tried, we offered them lavender, and we tried, we gave them rosemary, and sometimes at zoos have excess Christmas trees, and the lions will play and fight and roll on Christmas trees um, and act a bit silly with them. So I'm not sure whether it's intoxicant or whether it's just a fun toy to them. But it's very different. So I've had two household cats who didn't care anything for cat mint and one silly cat that just loved it. Whenever he slipped out the back door, I knew where I would find it would be in the middle of my cat mint at home. Um, we have basil and other and blossoms that some of the animals love to eat. Our prehensile porcupine loves to eat roses, but she goes for the fragrant ones first. Oh, so she likes the heirloom ones then? <laughs> she does like the heirloom roses, and she's very particular. She would eat the fragrant roses first and then, then the next ones. But a lot of the animals love rose blossoms. And we have an organic rose garden. So whenever we deadhead roses or trim roses, we can offer the rose petals to the keepers. The tortoises, lots of the tortoises love roses as well. Of course, the goats will eat almost anything. Mm-hmm. We had a hippopotamus that used to come beg for roses. She would see the head horticulturist coming up with the bag and would come up to the wall and open her mouth to receive roses and have the most wonderful picture of a happy hippo smile with rose petals caught on her chin. (laughs) But we're not about to go out and spray poisons all over our plants when we have the opportunity to offer them to the animals. And again, we just don't think that's the right thing to do to support nature. I mentioned the fact we're on wetlands, and we have to be very careful of the runoff. We're only eight feet above sea level. Oh, yes. We're real close, up close and personal with water levels, so that we have rain gardens to help contain water here at the zoo. We're careful that the water from the animal exhibits goes into water containment areas, and that whatever we're using on our plants 
is non-toxic. Also, we've done wetlands restoration around the edges of the zoo to give us more buffer between our parking lot and the Lafayette River. And just this week, there was a project to help establish another oyster reef in the river just off the zoo's coastline. So we've got to be really mindful of what we're using and the immediate environment around the zoo yeah. as well. And, and I would imagine that the hippopotamus um, wasn't too worried if there was a Japanese beetle, for instance, um, on, on the, the thing, or if it was slightly misshapen. Um, she would, they, they, they are above that type of thing. They don't need it perfect, right? Absolutely. To them, it was perfect. It was an absolute treat. And sometimes it's just increased protein if there's a few aphids or a Japanese beetle included. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure that Japanese beetles actually stay still long enough once, they, once you've disturbed them. But <laughs> no, um, fortunately, we didn't have too many. We had some. We had some. And even the branches are tasty. The elephants love the long branches when we prune the roses. And you'd think that would hurt them, hurt hmm. the trunks to pick them up. Oh. But they love the whole leafy branch of the roses. Oh, well, at least it's one way of pruning, I guess, the roses. Um, yes, but, you know, we, but, you know, we need to take our final commercial break here. Um, but come back and listen to more about Elephants in the Garden with Marie Butler from the Virginia Zoo. We will be right back. Do your children know where their food comes from? At ConnectingFarmToFork.com, there's all kinds of ways to help your child understand how 300 million of us here in America stay nourished, clothed, and healthy. Activities, food facts, and farm visits help young people learn about America's hardworking farmers and have lots of fun doing it. Visit ConnectingFarmToFork.com today for a learning experience that will really grow on you. ConnectingFarmToFork.com, brought to you by the people who care at Feedstuff's Food Link. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. hope you're enjoying the Master Gardener Hour this morning. We have been talking about the zoo garden in Virginia with zoo keeper, I guess, uh, Marie Butler, who is in, literally has elephants in her garden. Um, and that's a very different sort of problem to most of us. Um, so, but are, are you in charge also of maybe doing the educational programs at the zoo? And what type of educational programs does the zoo have? Of course, we have many animal-centric programs where our docent volunteers will take small animals out. We have school programs at the zoo, um, but we also have horticultural programs. The Norfolk Master Gardeners have sponsored a story time here at the zoo on Thursday mornings, and so there's a craft and a story for children of many ages. And on Tuesday, they also have an informational cart time in the garden 
that will show adults and children some small feature of gardening, something interesting about a plant, even an insect and its relationship to plants. We have, When we have events like Earth Day or breakfast with the animals, we have master gardeners and staff at stations that can talk to people and answer questions, whether it's about our herb garden or the rose garden, um, plants that we cut for animals as well, just even questions that we can help them with for their own home. Our plant selection here is so tough. I tell people if the zoo can do it, you can do it. So, so, if, so, so if you're doing one particular type of plant, the, it would be definitely appropriate for um, somebody's home garden then. Uh, type absolutely. Of idea. Yeah. Nothing is on artificial life support or chemotherapy here. It has to be tough. Um, we're too short-staffed to have to fuss with plants. So we do use some common things in uncommon manners. I love spider form daylilies, for example, instead of just a plain daylily or a really ruffle daylily. I've used winter-blooming camellias, single form, in our Asian exhibit to look as much as we can like tropical Asia. So if you squint your eyes just right, you might believe a camellia is actually hibiscus. But we do have a good selection of plants and practical garden tips. Not everybody can take a tiger home, for example, but they can take many of our gardening ideas home, whether they're from our immediate region or not. Also, I do garden lectures, and I teach classes to master gardeners in about eight different counties and go to various garden associations and gardening groups. My favorite program is called, I Have Elephants in My Garden, So What's Your Problem? <laughs> but it does, we talk about the challenges of zoo horticulture, but some of the solutions that might work for homeowners who don't have elephants tracking up their gardens. Yeah, and, and I noticed on, on your um, list of, of topics and things that you um, have in the garden, um, you've got one that's called the cosmos and the butterfly. Um, is that because um, you've got some attractive areas that, and, and you attract butterflies and things like that to a specific area rather than um, just overall being attractive to butterflies? It's actually, we do both. We have an area that is designated as a butterfly garden, and again, that began as an Eagle Scout project. Um, but these are wild butterflies, so of course they will be go where they want to, and all spaces are butterfly-friendly. We have so many nectar plants and larval plants. We planted parsley in the fall, and as we already have swallowtail caterpillars on some of it, so that we do have... Again, specific areas and then kind of the coincidental areas where the butterflies may arrive. Um, sometimes that's hard to explain when we say we have a butterfly garden and people ask, well, where are the butterflies? But this is not a contained area. <laughs> you know, it has to be the season for butterflies yeah. for them to be there. So and it's kind of, kind of a mixture of both. These are things that work for the butterflies, that of the native plants we have to support the native insects as well, but we also have exotic plants 
So, so the for, formal and and informal type of atmosphere there. Um, so, so are there any new areas in the gardens um, this year that weren't then last year, or that you've been working on that weren't instantly trashed by somebody? Yes, yes, exactly. We do have an exciting area opening up. We have a new wellness campus, which is sort of the politically correct term for vet clinic and animal diet kitchen but in this area there are raised beds to illustrate human nutrition as well and just last week we planted an orchard of asian pear trees primarily that people will walk through as they approach this new wellness campus so we plant asian pears are wonderful in this climate especially because they don't have to be sprayed they don't need meticulous attention. They bloom in beautiful blooms. So there's something that people will experience walking through trees in bloom and also understand that this is healthy food that homeowners can grow. We'll be adding blueberries and blackberries. We have some Asian persimmons. Um, and and will, a, the, will the animals be offered those fruit as well, or is that Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. With that many, 35 pear trees bearing, we will have plenty of snacks for the animals. And I expect staff will try some samplings as well. We encourage that so that our staff will you know, have some healthy lessons as well. Also at the Wellness Campus, we have a new stage where we can do top lectures and small demonstrations about the animals and about the foods that we're growing. And, and do you have a, a newsletter or anything like that that includes um, some new tips and things um, for, for news from the, the garden in general? And does it is it always about the animals, or do the landscape people also get um, a part of that newsletter? We have a quarterly newsletter that goes out mostly to our members, and we do have a horticultural happenings column in there. Um, we try to make it bright and cheerful because we're usually just inside the front cover. And our standing joke is that our picture must be bigger than the director's picture, but that's <laughs> just the competition for space in the newsletter. So that we do communicate, particularly with our members. And our website is one of the very rare zoo websites that has pretty extensive information on zoo horticulture. We have about 11 or more theme gardens, and so where we used to put paper handouts and mailboxes in the gardens we're trying to save paper and litter now and we can refer people to the website for some specific information on each of our gardens yeah and 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 if so if somebody wanted maybe to invite you to come and talk to them um, is there a way they can contact you maybe through that website there absolutely is, and there's an email address for the zoo in general, and I am the, um, Marie Butler. I'm the only Marie on staff right now, so that makes it easy. Um, and my our contact phone numbers are on the website as well. Um, I thoroughly enjoy giving programs. What I do is so interesting. I love sharing it with other people. And, and you do you do a full color slides and things like that with this, right? Oh yes, oh yes. I'm presenting a, a tour to the Garden Club of Virginia during their symposium. They'll become a bus tour will be coming tomorrow to the zoo, 
and during lunch we'll be doing a lunch and learn and I'll be doing my program pretty as a peacock but twice as smart the peacocks are currently my nemesis that roam the grounds posing in the gardens and eating plants and making messes but there's a lot to be learned from a peacock despite their teeny teeny brain and that's just another one kind of the animal theme lectures i enjoy some lessons learned here yeah because I, I, I would imagine that, you know, working in that kind of environment, you start to appreciate um, all the different an, animals and, and how they react to um, different, I think it's great fun, how, how they react to roses versus lavender, <laughs> um, you know, things that, we, that humans go to. There's not that much different maybe between us. No, not really. You know, at times when you think, oh, what's a lizard know? And the amazing difference in what amphibians and reptiles will react to. Mammals, we understand a little better, being part of that classification. But it has been fascinating to find the interaction of different species, animals to plants and animals to people. Um, It's just, it's hard to imagine. Every day is so different. There's always something to learn. And we're all willing to learn from each other as well at work, which makes it even more fun. Yeah, I, I would imagine it would be fun working in, in an environment like that. Um, and so the, the educational programs are open to the public. You don't have to be a member of the zoo to do that. That's correct. And sometimes we'll have special events that may have an extra fee, but other pro- some programs are taken out to the school districts free. Some have fees attached. My lectures in the local region are often for a zoo donation, and then further out, it becomes more expensive for me to travel, too. But it's... We share information with our public. We share information through the Internet. We share information through other zoos and through our conservation contacts in the the immediate region, in the United States, and all the way into foreign countries. We're all sharing information, trying to make the world a better place for all living creatures. And I I would imagine that you're almost irreplaceable. Is is it something maybe that somebody could get us particular training for, maybe? There are. There are, well, there are certainly schools that offer veterinary training as applying applied to zoos and exotic animals, but they're internships at many zoos. So horticultural students, whether they're at the vocational tech, uh, Votech schools, um, universities, and sometimes internships are not attached to a specific form of education oh. as well. Yeah, and that, so that, that, I would imagine that's a great way of getting into this. But, you know, we're pretty much at the end of the, the show, Marie. I want to thank you so much for being here. It's been a great talk. Well, um, thank you. I really appreciate your, your contacting me. It's always a pleasure getting to talk to you about gardens. Thank you, Kate. You're more than welcome. Um, And that's all we have time for this morning, folks. Thank you for listening to the Master Gardener Hour this morning. We'll be back next week with another show talking all about gardening and gardens. Have a good gardening week, everyone, and join me back here next Saturday. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. 